So, last week of uh, Judges, if you've been with us, you know that this has been quite a ride. I hope you agree. Um, we have studied so many different stories, and every one of them has shown us just how wicked people can be and how gracious our God is. And if you've read ahead, and I hope you have, you know that um, we've saved the worst for last. So let me pray for us, and we're going to get started. Barry, if you could turn it down. I'm having, I'm having to whisper, which makes me feel very uncomfortable, and I want to yell. So if you could turn it that, thank you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the book of Judges. We thank you that every part of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, for teaching and for correction, for reproof. We thank you that even um, a book like Judges, which on face value seems, what, what benefit could this have for us other than being just a bunch of incredible stories that capture our imaginations? Help us to see that there is gospel things working underneath. And in particular this morning as we study this final story of the book of Judges and we are confronted with what I believe is one of the more, most horrific stories in all the Bible, that we would see our own um, sin and we would see our own need for a savior king. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as you look at your sheet this morning, I really struggled what to put there. We're actually looking at three whole chapters of the book of Judges, and notice I only have two verses. So um, don't be confused. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. And so if you don't have a Bible, please get it out. If you need one, there is a blue pew Bible should be around you or in front of you. Get that out as well. I'm going to do my best to tell the story of the final uh, chapter um, chapters of Judges. And if you were with us last week, you know that Judges ends after Samson with almost like an appendix. It's kind of like an epilogue uh, to the story of Judges. And it ends with two stories about Levites. Not necessarily Judges, but two Levites. We looked at one of them last week and, and this one. This is, I, and I just prayed this, this, this is, I think, one of not just the most horrific stories in Judges, and if you've been with us, you know there's some horrific stories in Judges. I, I believe this is one of the most horrific stories of the Bible. And so uh, we're among men this morning, so I'm going to speak plainly this morning. Um, we are recording this. I don't know if we'll put, we probably should, um, some kind of disclaimer on this particular lesson, uh, because we're going to be confronted with some absolutely heinous sin. And my, what I want you to begin to see is you're supposed to. I, I think many people who struggle to read the Bible, and, and in fact, probably um, those who are critical of the Bible, will talk about stories like this. And they'll say, well, the Bible, how can you trust it? If the Bible is about the goodness of God, then why is there such evil things in it, right? Why is there things like rape and genocide and murder and I think the answer to that question is because the Bible tells the truth. The Bible is not afraid to shy away from sin. It's not afraid to shy away from just how wicked human beings can be. And throughout the history of humanity, what we're going to read today is not only true, and now you need to wrestle with that, this is a true story, not only true in the Bible, 
but it's true to our human experience. In fact, the things that we're gonna read about today as you confront them are happening today in our world, today. And it's easy to kind of point the finger and say, this is so bad. I mean, I, I can't even relate to it. But the other thing I want you to wrestle with, is, as, as we should through the entire book of Judges, is whatever appropriate, now I say appropriate, reaction you have to this story, you should have an equally appropriate reaction to your own sin and to your need for a savior. The final story of the book of Judges was bookended by two phrases, and those are the verses that I put on your sheet. I wanna look at them real quick. When you see this in the Bible, it, it really is a clue that says this really is the theme. And I would argue this is not only the theme of the final story of Judges, but it has really been our theme for the entire book. We've titled this entire series together, Kingless. And these are the bookends of the final story of Judges. Let me read it for you. This is Judges 19.1. It begins, in those days, there was no king in Israel. The final verse of Judges, Judges 21.25. Again, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And then it's added, everyone did what is right in your own eyes. Many scholars believe that the book of Judges was written to prove the need for King David. To show that without a king, this is what we are capable of. And as we dive into this story together, I want you to begin to see that without the king, Jesus Christ, this is what we are left with. And to the degree that you can find your own story in this story, and it's not gonna be, I hope, a one-for-one -one correlation, but when you begin to see that your sin is just as horrific and that you too are in desperate need for a savior king. So the first thing I want you to know is that with no king, the people of Israel became just like their culture. With no king, they became just like their culture. I want you to go to Judges 19. I will read some of this for you and then I'll also summarize this for you as we move through the story together. Judges 19 verse one. We're told in those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So to begin we have to recognize a couple things. One, he's a Levite, so he's part of the tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi. The second thing is we know the Levites were called to uh, steward the worship of God. So, so here is a man who's called to steward the worship of God and yet things have gotten so far off, idols have so infiltrated his own heart as well as the other people of Israel. And we've talked about that theme, we talked about that theme last week throughout the book of Judges, that now he has taken to himself a concubine. Now what is a concubine? A concubine was a second class wife. It was um, property, it was a sex object. They had no rights, and for this Levite, this means that this, he was not only um, married to her, but this was his property. And we see throughout the Bible, again, people point to it and say, well, why would, do we see like polygamy, for example, and this is what we're looking at here, polygamy in the Bible. Does that mean it's okay? No, that doesn't mean it's okay. You can go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, in the creation of Adam and Eve, where it's told that therefore a 
a, a man will leave his family and hold fast to his wife and they'll become one flesh. The idea of a one flesh relationship, man and woman, and that's it. Goes all the way back to the beginning. And you say, well then why do we see so many of the patriarchs even practicing polygamy and taking concubines, even some of our heroes of the faith like Abraham and the kings. Why do we read that? Because just like you and me, the culture had influenced them in every way. Polygamy was a common part of Canaanite culture. It's what people practiced outside of the kingdom of God. So here's a Levite. And he's allowed the culture to penetrate every part of him to to the point that he's taken a concubine. We're told in verse two, his concubine was unfaithful to him. I think that is a ridiculous statement. If you think about what her life was like, (laughs) um, the fact that this is pointing out her unfaithfulness, (laughs) I think should give us pause. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And there were some, they were there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. I also think that's somewhat ironic for what we were about to see and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought with him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with great joy to meet him. What happens next is the man, this Levite, attempts to leave with his uh, concubine from her father's house over and over and over again. He he agrees to stay for a few days, but then after that he believes it's time to leave and each time his father-in-law convinces him to stay. And each time he does until finally, look at verse 10. Finally, we're told that the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus. He had with him a couple saddled uh, donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over and the servant said to his master, come, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside in the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but will pass on to Gibeah. So what's happening here? Well, they need a place to stay and they're Israelites. And so the closest place that they are is the city of the Jebusites, but this is foreign territory. This is Canaanite territory. These are unfriendly people. And so in the wisdom of this Levite, he says, well, we can't stay there. That's not going to end well. There's no safety there. There's no safety in staying in the city of a foreigner. We need to make sure we go to the city of our own people because that's where safety should be found. It makes sense, right? Let's go find our own countrymen our own people, uh, uh, territory that's occupied by our own tribes. And and that's where we'll find safety. And that place is Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So Benjamin, another one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a Benjamite city. And Israel, a, a city of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 15. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. And when he went and sat down in this uh, open, city of, uh, open square of the city, no one took them into his house to spend the night. I want you to pay attention to that. They purposely don't go to the city of foreigners because they thought they would find shelter in a city of one of the 12 tribes, their own countrymen, their own people, the people of God. And yet no one took them in. There's been no hospitality. That should have been the first clue. They keep going. Verse 16. 
And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening, and the man was from the hill country at Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. And the men of the place were Benjaminites. Fast forward to verse 20. The old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. Now this old man is saying, I'll take care of you, but we shouldn't stay here. So not only have they purposely gone to a place where they thought they would be taken in and they weren't, they've purposely gone to a place where they thought they would be safe, and yet there's this warning that the old man is giving them, saying, I'll take care of you, but we can't stay here. We can't stay in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And what I want you to see in this first section of Judges 19 is the ways in which culture has changed the people of Israel. We see it in the Levite and that he's taken a concubine to himself. But I want you to see that what we're beginning to uh, recognize, and we're about to see this in full force, is that though this man, this Levite, avoided a pagan city in order to go to a city that belonged to the people of God, what he found there was no difference. You see? There was no difference between the pagan city and the city that belonged to the people of God. They had become one and the same. No one took them in, no hospitality, no safety for their own countrymen. There was no king those days and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the challenge for you and me as we read this is to really ask the question, in what ways has our own culture influenced us? It's a question we've asked time and time again throughout this study together. And it's one way to think about it and say us, even now as I think many of you probably awoke to the news that uh, there's leaked documents from the Supreme Court about the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I was reflecting on that this morning. I thought, what a thing to pray for. But also, what a, what a place that we've come to. What ways has our culture, and always, turned into a place with no king? And in what ways, if we're honest, has that culture shaped our own hearts? If you've been around me teaching or preaching, you've probably heard me quote this before. I'm kind of butchering it. I actually need to read this quote again to make sure I'm saying it, not paraphrased. But it comes from Leslie Newbigin. You know the story of Leslie Newbigin. He was a missionary who, to India from the UK. Um, he returned back to the UK after years on the mission field in India, and he was just struck by how much the United Kingdom had changed, how much it had drifted away from the teachings of scripture in the Church of England. And as he critiqued his own culture in the United Kingdom, he said that trying to critique your own culture is like trying to push a bus while sitting in it at the same time. What's he saying? He's saying, look, you can critique your culture, but you'd be a fool not to recognize you're just as much a part of it as anybody else, right? In what ways are we just like this that the culture has influenced us as well? The second thing I want you to see is that with no king, they became the very worst of their enemies. 
With no king, the people of God, God's people, the people of Israel became the very worst of their enemies. Look with me, verse 22. So here's the Levite, and here's his concubine, his servant, his donkeys. Verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house. Again, these are Benjaminites, men of the city, right? Fellow people of God, part of the 12 tribes, these men, worthless fellows, surround the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into, an, into your house that we may know him. If you are a student of the Bible, you know that that phrase, we may know him, is a euphemism for sex. So let me read it to you again. These Benjaminites, fellow men of the country of Israel, tribesmen from Benjamin, came to the Levite. They went to the old man who had taken him in. They were beating on the door and they said, bring that man out so that we can have sex with him. They were demanding to rape another man. It gets worse. It gets worse. The man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. So this old man, at least in his first in inclination, does what is right and says, please don't do that. Don't do that to this man and don't do this for yourself. This is an outrageously vile thing that you were suggesting. Instead, let me give you an equally outrageously vile thing to do. Now you say, well, why would he do that? Well, because again, a concubine had no rights. And you would say, well, then why would he not just offer the Levite's concubine? But he didn't just offer that, he offered his own daughter. Because even women had no rights. And he didn't just offer them to these men. Notice what he said, violate them. No, rape them instead. Do whatever you want with them. An outrageously vile thing in place for another outrageously vile thing. Left to our own sin and our own devices, we will substitute sin for sin every single time. It gets worse. But the men would not listen to him, verse 25. So the man seized his concubine, it's Levite, and made her go out to them. Can you imagine this scene? Men beating on the door. And rather than go out to confront them, he grabs his second-class wife and he forces her out the door. Can you imagine the fear that she must have had? It's a difficult thing to imagine, but I want you to see that this is a true story. This really happened. And the truth is things happen like this all over the world every single day. The man seized his concubine and made her go out to him, and they knew her. In other words, they raped her and abused her 
all night until the morning. Again, I'm not trying to be um, overly crass. I want you to see the horror of the story for what it is. These men gang raped this woman all night. This is in the Bible because the Bible's telling the truth. They abused her all night into the morning and as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Exhausted, beaten, raped and abused, this woman is now laying on the doorstep like a dog. Verse 27, the master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Notice what he says to her in verse 28. Get up, let be going. He didn't pick her up, didn't help her up. She's a dog to him. Get up, let's go. Doesn't say I'm sorry, doesn't say are you okay. And then we're told that as he gives her this command, there's no answer because she had died. And so to summarize what the man does next, beginning of verse 29, he takes a knife, he takes her dead body and he cuts her into 12 pieces. And he sends those 12 parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. You say, well, why on earth would he do that? One word, vengeance. And I believe, I can't prove this, that he wants vengeance for the death of his concubine, not because he misses her or loved her, because that was his property. And that's not okay to him. Can't prove that, though. Whatever the case, he wants revenge. He wants vengeance. And so he's trying to stir up the appropriate reaction to this heinous crime from the other tribes to say, we must get the perpetrators. They must be brought to justice. And so he breaks up her body limb from limb into 12 pieces and sends it out to say something must be done. And as the story continues, what we see is that that exactly happens. They get stirred up and they go to war. We'll get there in just a second. But before we do, what I want you to see here is that any good Hebrew student of the Bible would have immediately remembered another story in the Hebrew scriptures that sounded just like this one. I want to read it for you. It says Genesis 19. As I read Genesis 19, I want you to go back to Judges 19.22. Okay? I want you to look at Judges 19.22. I want you to listen to Genesis 19. See what you notice the parallels. Genesis 19.4, but before they lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called a lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men of the entrance and shut the door. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. You see the similarities? What's the point? Any good student of the Bible, 
especially a Hebrew who had learned the scriptures, as they heard the story of Judges, would have immediately thought of Sodom. What I want you to see is that the people of Israel had become just like Sodom. They'd become the very worst of their own enemies. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah stood out to them as it stands out to even us if you've ever studied the Bible. It's one of those stories of this is just how wicked humanity can be. This pagan city of Sodom and everything that happened to the point that it was set to destruction by God. And it fast forward to the book of Judges. And over generations, God's people had become just like Sodom. The third thing I want you to see. With no king, they destroyed themselves. Look with me, Judges 20, verse 1. With no king, they destroyed themselves. What happens now, and it's two whole chapters, is this Levite trying to muster up the other people of Israel to enact vengeance on what has happened to his concubine. And I say vengeance because what we're about to read is not justice, but it's revenge, and there's a huge difference. I'm reminded in the Bible of just how often we're reminded that justice comes from the Lord. It's his. And what we see here is really revenge. What we see here is that when we try to solve our own problems with no king and no authority, it ends up being self-destructive. And that's exactly what we see here. He sends these 12 parts of her to the 12 tribes. They start, I think, a good place, and they demand that the tribe of Benjamin would deliver the men who did this. I think that's a good place to start. In other words, we want the perpetrators. That's who we want to punish. That seems just. But of course, as you can imagine, because people left to their own devices with no king do wicked things, what did the tribe of Benjamin say? No. <laughs> you say, well, what would motivate them to do that? I don't know. Other than clearly we're beginning to see that there is some kind of animosity between the tribes themselves. God's own people putting their own tribe above the greater kingdom of Israel. Does that ever sound familiar to you? <laughs> Have you ever put your own tribe above the kingdom of God? You can fill in the blank with whatever tribe that might be. That's what they were doing. Their own tribe above the kingdom of Israel. So Benjamin said, no, we're not going to give you our people. Whatever they did, we don't care. And so stirred up the remaining tribes of Israel said, we will not sleep until this thing is fixed. And they go to war with one of their own tribes. This thing has now resulted in civil war. They're fighting themselves, tribe against tribe. What we read throughout Judges chapter 20 is the account of how this war went. Many died. And it ends in ambush as the remaining 11 tribes ambush the tribe of Benjamin and they put them to death. We read here, verse 29 of chapter 20, so Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. Verse 34, and there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of Israel and the battle was hard, 
But the Benjamites did not know that disaster that was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw they were defeated. A couple things I want you to notice here. One, I want you to notice that Benjamin was defeated in battle. That's important for what's about to happen next. The other thing I want you to notice is what it says. It says, look with me in verse 35, that the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. As we've seen throughout all of Judges, God is the one who's behind all of this. And then you say, well, that's hard to reconcile. And I agree it is. But again, God has created us in his image and in his sovereignty, he has entrusted us with a will. Now, I definitely don't have time. I'm already over to talk about where our free will meets his sovereignty. We're going to save that for another one. But what I do know is throughout scriptures, we see two very true things, that God is sovereign over all things and we are not robots. And God, in his sovereignty, has allowed this to happen. And he's allowed Benjamin to be defeated. Now, I don't know and I can't prove if God's desire is for what has happened next. You could say, well, Benjamin had it coming. They had it coming that they didn't give up these perpetrators, so they needed to be defeated in battle. And that's what just happened here. But again, it gets worse. The remaining 11 tribes didn't stop at just defeating Benjamin. They went on. We see this, verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, the men, and beasts, and all they had found. And all the towns they found, they set on fire. They didn't stop at defeating the tribe of Benjamin and battle. They went from there and committed genocide. They killed everybody. So much so that in Judges 21, they begin to lament, and this is ridiculous. They begin to lament that one of their tribes is now gone. Think about that for a second. <laughs> they obliterate one of the, their own tribes and then they lament before the Lord why he has allowed one of their tribes to be obliterated. But how different are we? Left to our own devices, the sin that we will commit, and then we go to God and we say, why'd you let this happen? <laughs> this is what we see. Again, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This seemed right to them. So then in Judges 21, it gets worse. In Judges 21, we read how they're lamenting now that one of the 12 tribes is now gone. And that's not good for Israel and its kingdom. What are they to do? And then they remember that there were a few men who didn't die. But they're just men. 600 men. But there's no women. So now what do you do? How will the tribe of Benjamin survive if there's no women in order for them to have children with? Well, they did what was right in their own eyes. They went to another city. They killed all those people except for the virgins. And they gave them to them. 
Only the problem was it was only 400 versions. Math doesn't add up. So it gets worse. They did what was right in their own eyes. And they then go to a place called Shiloh. And they tell these men of Benjamin, just hide in the bushes. And when you see virgins come out, just take them and they're yours. So they solved the rape and murder of a concubine by murdering an entire tribe, by then murdering another city, and by raping 600 more women. That was their solution. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What are we to do with the story? What do we do with the book of Judges? This is how Judges ends. <laughs> what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I would argue this is a fitting end of the book of Judges. I would argue that I think there is something to be said that the reason why Judges was written was to show us that this is how bad we are without the king. And as you're confronted at your tables and your groups this morning with this story, I want you to be confronted with your own sin because I believe the author of Judges is trying to get us to see that you and I need a king too. We need a king. And every part of us that rebels against the kingship and authority of Jesus, and it's in you, it's in me, needs to be checked by this story. If you've ever as a man thought, I just don't want to submit myself to the authority of God. If you've ever, even in a moment of weakness and sin, thought, I'm going to choose my own way, what seems right to me, rather than what God has commanded me to, I believe this story is a check for our souls. A warning that says his kingdom and his kingship is better. Because it's in this context that then the prophet Isaiah came and made this promise, and this is where we're in. Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Throughout the book of Judges, what have we seen? <laughs> people who have walked in great darkness. We've seen that darkness done to them time and time again throughout Judges. We've also, in this story, we saw that this darkness was within them, and they did it to themselves. We are just like that. Darkness done to us, darkness within us. Isaiah wrote, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light is shown. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. God, look down on our darkness, even darkness such as we read about today and said, I'm going to send my own son into that darkness to be your savior king. He will die on the cross for you to set you free so that he might rule you forever for your good, for your peace, for your righteousness, and for your salvation. As we end our entire series through Judges, I want to ask this final question is, do you know the king? 
Have you submitted yourself to the authority and kingship of Jesus Christ? Because without a king, you too will do what is right in your own eyes. Let me pray for you and send it to your groups. God, we do pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit. And we're reminded again, as I prayed before we read this story, that all scriptures God breathed. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us an appropriate response to this story and help us to see that um, we need a king. Help us to press into those places where we rebel against the kingship of Jesus. And if there's any man here this morning who's wrestling even with trusting you and believing in you and following you and submitting to you, uh, show him, show him that your kingship is better. Show all of us that your kingship is better. Because without you, we will do what is right in our own eyes and it is self-destructive. Would you redeem us, save us, free us from our sin by your sovereign hand, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go to your groups.